Part two, chapter five of *The Gambler* by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part two, chapter five. The three days that followed Ashley's death resolved themselves into so many hours of gloom and confusion that found their culmination in the funeral ceremony. To Irishmen of every class, a funeral is invested with an almost symbolic importance and a solemn consideration is bestowed upon its most minute details. And Milbank, deeply imbued with the horror and suddenness of the whole disaster, was filled with a growing astonishment at the numberless preliminaries, the amount of precedence and prestige requiring consideration, before one poor human body could be hidden away. But he rose dutifully to the occasion, and proved himself unfailingly patient and conscientious in every emergency, from the first repugnant interview with the undertaker, to the woeful breakfast, partaken of in the early hours of the funeral morning, with the curtains drawn across the dining-room windows, and the candles of the massive silver sconces shedding an unnatural light upon the table laden with eatables. The guests who partook of this meal were men of varied and interesting types, but whatever their characteristic differences, it was remarkable that the same air of responsibility and solemnity inspired them all. It did not matter that many of them had been personal enemies of the dead man, that many, with that jealous distrust of unconventionality that reigns in Ireland, had markedly drawn away from him in the last ten years of his life. Death had obliterated everything. Ashton's eccentricities, his lawlessness, his contempt for the little world in which he lived, were all forgotten. He was one of themselves, deserving, in death at least, the same consideration that the county had bestowed upon his father, his grandfather, and those who had gone before them. The faces of these men were unfamiliar to Milbank, though each, on entering the dining-room, shook him cordially and sympathetically by the hand. The meal was partaken of almost in silence, and it was with obvious relief that, one after another, the members of the party rose from table and passed into the darkened hall, and from thence to the sweep of the gravelled drive that fronted the house, where the less privileged of those who had come to do Ashton honour lounged singly or in groups. The funeral was timed to start at nine, but the concourse of mourners, well accustomed to the delays inevitable on such an occasion, evinced no sign of impatience when half-past nine and then ten arrived, and no move had yet been made. But all things come to those who understand the art of patience. At a quarter-past ten, a thrill galvanised the lethargic crowd, and with the recognition of the great moment for which they waited, the men began to jostle each other and push forward towards the house, while all hats were respectively removed. A faint murmur of admiration and awe went up from the gathering as the great brass-bound coffin was borne solemnly through the door and laid upon the open bier. In silence, Milbank and young Lawrence Ashnin took their places as chief mourners, and with the inevitable confusion and uncertainty of such a moment, the crowd of men and vehicles formed up behind them, the horses under the bier moved slowly forward, and the body of Dennis Ashton passed for the last time down the avenue and through the gates of Oristown. The funeral over, Milbank walked back from Carrigmore alone. The servants who had followed their master to his resting-place in the old graveyard had remained in the village to enjoy the importance that the occasion lent them. Young Ashton had disappeared at the conclusion of the burial service, while the daughters and sister-in-law of the dead man, 
in accordance with the custom of the country, had remained secluded in their own rooms at Oristown, appearing neither at the breakfast nor the funeral. In a house of death, the hours that succeed the burial are, if possible, even more melancholy than those that precede it. The sensations of awe and responsibility have been dispersed, but as yet it is impossible to resume the commonplace routine of life. As Milbank passed through the gateway and walked up the drive, ploughed into new furrows by the long procession of cars that have followed the coffin, he was deeply sensitive to this impression, and it fell upon him afresh with a chill of desolation as he entered the door, still standing open, and moved slowly across the deserted hall. In the dining-room the curtains had been drawn back and the candles extinguished, but the daylight seemed to fall tardily and unnaturally upon the room after its three days' exclusion. He stood for a moment looking at the debris of the breakfast that had not yet been removed, at the disarray of the chairs that had been hurriedly vacated. Then, with a fresh and poignant sense of loss and loneliness, he turned hastily and walked out of the room. In the hall he attempted to pause afresh, but the sound of muffled sobbing from the upper portion of the house sent him incontinently forth into the open. With an overwhelming desire for human fellowship, for any companionship in this abode of desolation, he passed without consideration of his dignity round the corner of the house in the direction of the stable-yard. He walked calmly, but there was a pucker of anxiety on his usually placid brow, an expression of concern, apart from actual sorrow, in his tightly set lips. To the most casual observer it would have been obvious that something weighed upon his mind. Still moving with his habitual precision, he entered the yard by the arched gateway, picking his way between the scattered array of rubbish, food, and implements that encumbered the ground. When he appeared, a dozen rough or glossy heads were thrust out of kennels or outhouses, as the dogs accorded him a noisy welcome. But paying only partial heed to their demonstrations, he passed on to the vast coach-house, with a vague hope that some labourer connected with the farm or stables might possibly have been left behind in the general exodus but here again he was doomed to disappointment. The coach-house, with its walls festooned with rotting harness, its ghostly row of cumbersome and antiquated vehicles, was as empty of human presence as the yard itself. Conscious of the isolation that hung over the place, disproportionately aware of his own aimlessness, he stood uncertain in what direction to turn. For the moment the household had no need of him. There were no legal formalities to succeed the funeral, Ashton having left no will, and of personal duties he had none to claim his attention. He stood by the coach-house door, woefully undecided as to his next move, when all at once relief came to him from the most unexpected quarter of the outbuildings. One of the dairy windows was opened sharply, and a head was thrust through the aperture. "'Wish, uh, what is it you're doing there, sir?' a voice demanded kindly. "'Sure that old yard is no fit place for you.' Turning hastily, Milbank saw the broad, plain face of Hannah, her small eyes red, her rough cheeks stained with weeping. "'Why, Hannah!' he exclaimed. "'What are you doing here? I thought you were at the funeral.' Hannah passed the back of her hand across her eyes. "'What shall what would I be doing at it?' she demanded huskily. "'Sure I don't know what they do be seeing in funerals at all.' Milbank glanced up with interest, recognising the originality of the remark. "'Why, you and I are of the same opinion,' he said. 
The Celtic delight in the obsequies of a friend has been puzzling me for the last three days. Then he paused suddenly, conscious of Hannah's fixed regard. That is, he substituted quickly, that is, I've been wondering, like you, what they see in it. Hannah's small, observant eyes did not waver in their scrutiny. "'You've been wondering about something, sure enough,' she said. "'I'd seen it myself every time. I'd be carrying in the dinner, or doing a turn for the poor corpse. God be good to him this holy and blessed day.' Again she wiped her eyes. "'But tisn't wandering alone that's at you,' she added more briskly. "'Tis some other thing that's lying heavy on your mind. I'd seen it myself at every hand's turn.' Milbank started. This sympathetic onslaught was as disconcerting as it was unexpected. "'I—I uh, I won't contradict you, Hannah,' he said waveringly. "'No doubt you are right.' For the space of a minute Hannah was profoundly silent. Then she broached the subject that had been filling her mind for a day and a half. "'What are now? Is it through what they do be telling me?' she asked softly and warily. "'That you're going to be father and mother and all to them two poor children.' Again Milbank started almost guiltily. Then the personal of anxiety that mingled with and almost dominated his grief for Ashlyn rose irrepressibly in response to the persuasive tones, the kindly human interest and curiosity. "'Yes, Hannah,' he said quickly. "'Yes, it is my intention to try and fill my poor friend's place.' The tears welled suddenly into Hannah's eyes, and with an awkward movement she wiped her rough hand in her apron and held it out. "'God Almighty will give it back to you, sir.' she exclaimed with impulsive fervour. Strangely touched by the expression of understanding and appreciation, he responded to the gesture and took her hand. But instantly she withdrew it. "'Don't be minding an old woman like me, sir,' she said deprecatingly. "'Twas the thought of the children that come over me. I couldn't help it. I had the both of them in my arms before they could cry. Small wonder my heart would be in them. Many's the sad day I put over me, thinking what would become of them, with the poor master going to the bad. God forgive me for saying it. And sure now tis all settled and done for, and the heavens of it all off our minds. Praise be to God. She paused to dry her tears. And what would you be thinking to do with them? she asked presently, in a new and more personal tone. Milbank did not answer at once. His eyes strayed uneasily from one object in the yard to another, while the frown of perplexity that had puckered his brow since Ashlyn's death reappeared more prominently than before. At last, with a certain expression of puzzled resolution, he looked up and met Hannah's attentive gaze. "'To tell you the truth, Hannah,' he said, "'that is the precise question I have been asking myself ever since your poor master died.' There was a wait of some seconds while his listener digested the information. Then she nodded her head with slow impressiveness. "'I seen it myself,' she said again. "'Sure, I seen it as plain as daylight. "'There's something on his mind,' I says to myself. "'But it isn't the poor master's death,' I say. "'Then it's nothing more nor less than the natural feelings of a single gentleman "'that finds himself with two grown daughters.' "'It was characteristic of Milbank that he did not smile. "'He recognised only one fact in the old servant's words, "'the fact that the state of affairs over which he had been worrying in lonely perplexity had suddenly been accurately, if roughly, voiced by someone else. He glanced up with quick relief into the round, red face framed in the dairy window. "'Hannah,' he said honestly, "'your surmise was perfectly correct.' For the first time a smile broke over her tear-stained face. 
"'I was right, then. "'Tis the children was troubling you.' "'A sharp gleam of inquiry shot from her eyes. "'Yes,' he answered simply. "'And why now?' "'Again her tone changed. "'The irrepressible undercurrent of native humour, "'native inquisitiveness and familiarity "'welling out unconsciously. "'Sure they're good children.' "'I do not doubt it. "'I do not doubt it for one moment. "'But they're troubling you all the same.' "'Well, yes. "'Yes, I confess they are troubling me.' "'Both of them?' she asked innocently. "'He hesitated. "'Well, no,' he replied artlessly. "'No, not both of them. "'Ah, and I thought that same.' "'Hannah gave a nod of understanding. "'Sure, twas to be tormenting men she was brought into the world for. "'I said so myself the first day I took her into me arms.' "'But but I haven't said anything. "'How do you know that it is? "'How do I know that it's Miss Clara that's bothering you? "'Sure, how do I know that you're standing before me? "'Faith, by the use of me eyesight. "'Haven't I seen you looking at her and pondering and looking at her again?' "'Milbank's lips tightened, and he drew himself up. "'I should be sorry if any thought I have bestowed on your young mistress,' "'he began coldly. "'Then suddenly the intense need of help and sympathetic counsel overbalanced dignity. "'Hannah,' he said abruptly, "'I am in a terribly awkward position. "'That is the simple truth. "'My mind is quite at rest about the younger girl. "'She is a child, and will be a child for years. "'A good school is all she needs. "'But with the other it's different. "'With Clodagh it's different. "'Clodagh is no longer a child.' "'Hannah remained discreetly silent. "'If I had a sister,' he went on, "'or, or any friend to whom I could entrust her, "'but I have none.' Again Hannah shook her head. "'Why, then, that's a pity,' she murmured. "'Sure, it is lonesome for a gentleman to be by himself.' "'It is a pity, a great pity. You do not know how it is weighing upon me. Of course there is her aunt.' Hannah made an exclamation of horror. "'Is it Mrs. Lawrence?' she cried. "'Is it tie her to Mrs. Lawrence, you would? Sure, you may as well have put her in the grave and be done with it.' Milbank's harassed face grew more perplexed. "'No,' he said hurriedly, "'no, I understand that that arrangement is impossible. "'I was merely wondering whether there is any other, "'any more distant relative with whom she might be happy.' "'He looked anxiously into her broad, shrewd face. "'For a moment the small eyes met his seriously. "'Then involuntarily they twinkled. "'Faith, when I was a young woman, sir,' she said slowly, "'men wasn't so sat on finding relations for a girl like Miss Clodagh. "'unless maybe it was a relation of their own making.' "'Milbank suddenly looked away. "'What do you mean?' he asked confusedly. "'Why, that isn't aunts and cousins that a girl like Miss Clodagh wants, "'but a good husband.' A, "'A husband?' "'Why, then, what else? "'Instead of troubling yourself and fretting yourself till your heart is scolded out of you, "'why don't you marry her? "'That's what I've been asking myself ever since the poor master died.' "'It's out now, if I want to be killed for it.' She eyed him almost defiantly. But Milbank stood stammering and confused, his gaze fixed nervously on the ground, an unaccustomed flush on his worn cheeks. "'But, but, but, Hannah, I, I am an old man.' His tone was deprecating, and meant to be ironic. But unconsciously it had an undernote of question. Unconsciously, as he raised his eyes to his mentor's face, he straightened the shoulders that age and study had combined to bend. "'I am an old man,' he said again. "'Why, why, I am five years older than her father.' Hannah continued to search his face. "'And sure what harm is that?' she said. 
Wasn't me own poor man as old as me grandfather? And no woman ever buried a finer husband, God rest him. Milbank's lack of humorous imagination stood him in good stead. But she's a child, he stammered. A, a child. For answer, Hannah leant out of the window until her face was close to his. Listen here to me, she said softly. Child or no child, you thought about marrying her before ever I said it. But you'd never risk the courage to do it. You're not like the Ashlins that would tear down the walls of hell if they wanted to be getting at the divil. You'd like somebody to take him to be the hand and draw him out nice and easy for you. There she is up in that lonesome house, fretting her heart and crying her eyes out. Why can't you go up and take her before somebody else does? As she came to the last words, her rough voice dropped. Her loyalty to her dead master, her anxiety to see his child in a place of safety, poured from her in crude eloquence. To her primitive mind, Milbank appeared as the ideal husband, a man of dependable years, of wealth, of good social position, and all her affections, all her energies, yearned to make the marriage. She could not have framed the fear that possessed her, but her instinct, her acute native intuition, warmed her unanswerably that the daughter of Dennis Ashton would need protection, and would need it before long. With an impulsive gesture she stretched out her hand, and touching Milbank's shoulder, pushed him gently forward into the yard. "'Go on, sir,' she urged softly. "'Go on up and take her, before somebody else does.'" End of Part 2 Chapter 5